when you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of From Hostage to Hero. Today is a good one because I know you guys have been waiting for this one. We're going to talk today about how to read body language. Yes, this is what you're all about, aren't you? You know, I've talked about this in uh, past podcasts about how I don't believe you can read body language in order to ferret out someone's secret thoughts and feelings. And I still believe that and will always believe that. But there are things you can read. And the, the primary reason why I am podcasting on this today is because so many of you misread body language. And then when you do that, you start making up stories about what you think it means, and then that absolutely takes you off your game. So I'm hoping in today's podcast to release you of some of these stories that you're telling yourself about body language so that you can relax and focus on the job at hand. Because here's what happens when you misread body language. You start thinking, oh my gosh, what does that mean? This is bad. They're good, whatever. And it just it, it's a distraction. It takes you out of the present moment, which is where you have the most power. You've heard me tell the story of Randy Kennard, great attorney out in Tennessee, and how he had this story about a particular juror's body language who was, you know, crossed arms and had the scowl on his face. And and Randy really became obsessed over this juror. And he started, you know, thinking about this juror and, and worrying about this juror. And over a four-week trial, he just caused himself so much distress over this particular juror. And so when the jury went back in the verdict room and came back out, it was a defense verdict, 11 had voted against Randy, one for him. And as he was walking down the hallway afterwards, that one juror that he'd been worrying about the entire time came up to Randy, stuck his finger in his face and said, I just want you to know that I was the only one for you back there. And that really taught Randy to stop making up stories about body language. The thing is, We don't know why people are scowling or why they have their arms crossed or what the heck is going on in their head. And body language can only tell us that something is up, but it won't tell us what is going on with that person. So that doesn't mean that all is lost or that we never read body language. But what I want to caution you as we go through the episode today is that you don't make up stories about what you're seeing because that is really, really dangerous. You know, back in 2012, I was interviewed by The Atlantic and they wanted to talk about body language in terms of elections. And they asked me to give them an example of negative body language. And I said, you know what? There's no such thing. It all comes down to context. For example, someone holding their arms, crossed arms in front of them, holding themselves, rocking back and forth, you would think is negative unless that person is out waiting for a bus. It's 30 degrees outside and they haven't brought a jacket. You know, it's all contextual. All of it is contextual. And instead of trying to memorize, you know, the 
various nonverbal cues and what they mean or what people out there think they mean. I'm going to make it so much easier on you today and you're going to love, love, love this podcast. All right. So there are basically two things that you can read in terms of body language. Two things, I, I, I mean, there's many things you can read, but two things that will really get you on the right path and the two things that I train all my clients to read and to kind of throw everything else out. And I would say there's really three things, but I'll, I'll stri- explain the third thing and just at the end of the podcast. So the first thing is permission. Now, if you haven't listened to the podcast or the episode on permission, I suggest you go back and listen to that. And it's all about the idea that we need to get a juror's permission in order to move them from hostage to hero. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm not talking about verbal permission. I'm not talking about, do I have your permission? You know, asking somebody for permission and them saying, yes, you do, uh, which is just a weird thing to ask any anyone unless you're under the age of 15. <laughs> But this is why voir dire is hard, though, isn't it? I mean, when you think about it, this is why you go into voir dire and you pick what you think is a pretty decent jury, and then they come back with a defense verdict, and you realize you've got it all wrong. I think this is because we tend to misread permission, meaning we'll ask jurors something or we'll even maybe even say, do I have your permission to ask you about that? And the jurors will say, uh-huh, when we don't actually have their permission. So they're giving us verbal permission, but we don't actually have real permission. And that's the point here is that real permission is unspoken. It's non-verbal. The way that I define permission is how receptive someone is to you or your message. Therefore, what we're trying to do in trial is increase a juror's permission slowly and steadily from the beginning to the end. You can think of permission as a sort of thermometer, okay? It takes the temperature of the interaction that you're having. So when you don't have a lot of permission, the interaction should feel very cold, stunted, hard to get jurors to talk. Does this sound familiar (laughs) when we're at the beginning of trial? But as permission increases, the interaction gets warmer and more inviting. And that's what we're after is increasing that permission steadily over time. Now, once you have permission, that doesn't mean you have it forever. You could do something or say something that causes permission to drop. Uh, likewise, you could do or say something that causes it to spike. So again, it really is like a thermometer. It can go up and down, but your job is to steadily increase it with jurors because the more permission you have with jurors or anyone else, the more you can quote unquote get away with, the more you can ask of them, the more you can require of them. I mean, just think about this in your day-to-day life with your spouse or significant other or your kids or your best friend, you have a lot of permission with those people and they have a lot of permission with you. That's why you can say, hey, can you go run and and grab my dry cleaning? Um, I I just don't have time to do it where you wouldn't ask a stranger to do that, right? (laughs) You have lots of permission with the people in your lives who'd be willing to do that for you. I have a great mentor, uh, Mary Kogan, and a famous phrase, we all laugh, those of us who've been her students over the years, she has this this request and she always says, I have an outrageous request. And it is always outrageous. I mean, it's always like, can you drive out to the airport and pick up this random person that you don't know, but that I need help with or, you know, something outrageous. But she has so much permission with us that we always do it. We always do it. So that's what I'm talking about when we're talking about 
permission. All right, so if we go back to the idea of what you can and cannot read in terms of body language, the first thing I want you to focus on reading is permission. Because permission, true permission, is nonverbal, then you can read whether you have it or not. Now, I've already told you one way to read it, which is how does the communication interaction feel? If it feels cold, stunted, hard to get people to talk, you know you don't have very much permission injury selection or anywhere else. But if it starts to feel warm, people are talking to you, you know permission is increasing. But the other way that you can read permission is through breathing. And you might think, how the heck do I read breathing? Sorry. Uh, well, here's, here's a real easy way. People, when they're breathing well, they are still versus stiff. So they're just sitting still, shoulders are resting, head is resting on top of the shoulders. If they're speaking, it's very fluid, like I'm speaking now. And that means breathing is going fine. When someone has stopped breathing or is holding their breath or is breathing shallowly, what you'll notice is the opposite, stiff. So for example, inhale right now and hold it. You'll notice that your shoulders go up, your head gets really stiff, and if you try to speak from this place, you um, might ha um, have trouble f finding your words. That's kind of what a juror will sound like when you know that they've stopped breathing. Now, we know that breathing is an indicator of permission because when someone has stopped breathing or is holding their breath or shallow breathing, they go into their fight or flight response. They go into their survival place. And you don't have permission with someone who's in survival mode because that automatically means that they feel under attack. So we know that when people are breathing, they are more receptive. Now, this doesn't mean they agree with you. It just means they're open to your ideas. But when they've stopped breathing, you've lost permission. You know, a great place to play with this is when you uh, talk about money. So those of you who talk about in voir dire, and I'm not going to say what's right or wrong, just let's just talk about those of you who do talk about that in voir dire. You might say, now in this case, we are asking for $10 million. Watch the jury very carefully. If they just sit there and there's no change in their body language, there's no stiffness, you know that they're fine with that number. But if instead they, <gasps> and maybe they don't even make a sound, but you could just tell there's a slight shift in uh, intake and breath, you know that you've lost permission that they think that number is high. Now, that doesn't mean you have to change the number or do all the, any of those things. It just means that you're going to have to work a little harder to convince them that that's the right number. So permission is something you can read. You can read it through breathing. You can read it through the way the interaction feels. In fact, you can read breathing through the way the interaction feels. If it feels like the breath or the air has literally been sucked out of the room, you know that people aren't breathing. You can tell. Have you ever walked into a room where two people have just had a fight? I mean, they're not fighting anymore, but you've, they had just had a fight. I mean, it's just hanging in the air. Breathing is kind of the same thing. When people, the whole room is breathing not well, you can feel it even before anyone says anything. So start fine-tuning your awareness about this because it's going to tell you a lot about how much permission you have. And I think just talking about it here in the podcast is going to give you another sense to play with of next time you're in jury selection, maybe you're not even focusing on stiff versus still, but you're going, ah, this feels great or this feels stunted. 
that's going to be an indicator of permission. So that's one thing you always want to have an eye on in terms of what to read in terms of body language. The other thing that you can read in terms of body language is the idea or the the concept of going back to a couple podcasts ago, authoritative body language versus approachable body language. So You've heard me say before, or if you're new to me, you haven't heard it, that every communication situation falls into one of two buckets. We are either tending to the relationship or dealing with an issue. And so certain body language goes with both of those things, meaning relationship-oriented body language is going to be the approachable body language. It's going to be the body language where the person has a tilted head or it bobs when they speak. If they're like a juror, they're seated, they might be leaning forward. If they're speaking with their hands, the palms are going to face up. And the voice is going to sound a little bit more sing-songy, kind of like I'm talking right now. So this is your relationship-oriented oriented communication. Now on the flip side, we have our issue-oriented communication, and this is the authoritative communication. So in terms of the juror, what this would look like is they might have their arms crossed. They most likely will be sitting straight up and down versus leaning forward. They probably don't move their head very much, if at all, and it's never tilted. And when they speak, if they use their hands, palms face down and the voice curls down. Now, If you think about these two types of jurors, the relationship-oriented juror and the issue-oriented juror, which juror is easier to talk to? (laughs) Yeah, it's the relationship-oriented juror. They're nodding, they're smiling, they're leaning forward. But we take a look at the issue-oriented juror and we go, oh, that's scary. I don't want to talk to that person. And here's what happens next. We start making up stories. So we think that the relationship juror is the great juror for us. And we look at the issue oriented juror and we start making up stories and thinking, oh, this person doesn't like me. They hate me, blah, 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 blah. Stop. Just stop right now. Neither one of those things mean what you think it means. And by the way, no one is issue oriented or relationship oriented all the time. We all go in and out of both of those modes. I mean, think in your own life. You're probably issue-oriented when you're at work, but then you go out to happy hour with your colleagues and you go into relationship mode. So we're constantly going in and out. However, most people have a resting place. Now, because court is a very issue-oriented environment, many jurors, if not most, tend to show up issue-oriented. But all people down deep, have their resting place. For example, I'm more issue-oriented across the board. My voice tends to curl down. I tend to gesture with my palms. I'm doing it right now as I'm talking to you on this podcast. And that's just kind of my resting place. Are there places that I go relationship? Absolutely. But my resting place is issue. So the same can be said for jurors. They have particular resting place. Now, here's where you tend to go wrong. We tend to look at the relationship-oriented juror because they're so easy to talk to and we think, oh, this is a good juror for me. But what you don't understand is that relationship-oriented jurors have both public and private behavior, meaning in public, they will show you politeness. They will nod, they will smile, even if on the inside, they think that you're doing terribly and they totally disagree with you. And then they'll go home and they'll be like, you won't believe this idiot juror or uh, lawyer I heard today. 
So I don't say that to scare you, but just to show you that because they their belief in politeness, they will give you a lot of nodding and leaning and all that kind of thing, but that doesn't mean anything in terms of whether they are for you or against you. Likewise, the issue-oriented juror will sit, sit there with his arms crossed or her arms crossed and barely move the head and hardly give you any eye contact and we go, oh God, this is a bad juror for me. No, not necessarily. It just means they're more interested in logic, facts, prove it to me. Okay, it doesn't mean they've made a decision either way. In fact, you can go back to breathing. If your issue-oriented juror is breathing fine, it means they're receptive, just like your relationship-oriented juror. Here's how you can use this information, is that when you see either one of these body language types, just know that with the relationship-oriented juror, you're going to need to tell more stories, you're going to need to... um, give more emotion. You're going to talk more about the plaintiff and the human element. And with your issue-oriented jurors, you're going to need more facts, evidence, logic. And you might think, well, sorry, how the heck do I do this when I have all these different jurors on the panel? Friends, that's why I always tell you to form the group. Go back. I think I did a Facebook Live about four podcasts ago, episodes ago. I think I talk in that one, I'm not sure, but I'm I'm pretty sure, about why you want to form group. And this is one of the reasons why, because when you form the group, and this is really the third thing I mentioned that you can eventually read, they create a culture and that culture ends up being either issue or, or, or relationship. And then you only have to adapt to one thing, not 12 or eight or six things. So that's really why group formation is my jam. That's what I teach a lot. That's what I'm an expert in because it just solves so many of your problems. But for today, I want to remind you as we start to end this podcast of what body language you can read or how to read it. What we're really reading is whether the jurors or anyone else in our lives are relationship are in relationship mode in that moment or are they in issue mode and how are they breathing? And this is true regardless in any area of your life, you can read these three things. How does the interaction feel? It probably has to do with breathing, whether it feels warm and inviting or stunted and cold. And is this person in relationship mode or in are they in issue mode? And that tells you a lot, whether you're with a client or a colleague, if they're in relationship mode, that's your cue to go relationship mode too. If they're using approachable, that's your cue to be approachable as well. If they're being issue-oriented, that's your cue to go to issue. And I'll do a whole uh, episode on how to adapt your nonverbal communication, but that's just a little quick (laughs) intro to that, is that you really increase permission when you meet people where they are. So we'll talk about that in in an episode to come, but hopefully this gives you some insight and helps you relax and stop trying to read every single little nonverbal cue. It's a distraction. It gets in your way. Just go for breathing and relationship or issue and you will do just fine. In fact, you'll do better than fine. All right. I hope that's been helpful. helpful. Until next week, we'll talk then. Bye. That's it for this episode of From Hostage to Hero. But head to our website, sorrydlm.com, for other must-have resources from Sari Delamart. Read the transcript of this podcast, watch trial tip videos, or download your free copy of Sari's article, Why Jurors Hate the Hobby Question. We're glad you joined us today. And until next time, remember that to lead a hostage to freedom, you must first free yourself.